Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show, guys. You'll notice we don't run any ads here, but we do ask for you to pay a simple and small fee. And that fee is this. If you find value in the show, I'm pretty confident in the arcs we have some incredible guests each week, then please share the show. You know, if you're chatting with friends and colleagues about education and development, please recommend us. As I said, you know, we don't run ads here and we continue to grow organically through you, the listener. So please spread the word and help us get this information out to a lot more people. Now, on this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Potter and Dr. David Looney, who are both research physiologists from the Biophysics and Biomedical Modeling Division at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, also known as USERIUM. So give you an overview of Adam's career prior to him stepping in as the Deputy Chief of the Biophysics and Biomedical Modeling Division at USERIUM. He was a former U.S. Marine Corps veteran, and they spent several years in clinical research. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at Cambridge College and a Master of Business and Administration and Master of Science in Sports and Health Sciences at American Military University before completing his Doctor of Philosophy in Biomedical and Health Informatics at Rutgers University. His research portfolio spans across the applied sciences from thermal mannequin testing to the cutting edge of product development. His colleague David earned his bachelor's in nutritional sciences at the University of New Hampshire before obtaining his master's and PhD in exercise science at the University of Connecticut. David's developed numerous predictive models for the Department of Defense, including metabolic cost equations for the U.S. Army load carriage decision aid, formula for determining body surface area of modern U.S. Army personnel, as well as a novel core body temperature estimation method. Combined, these gentlemen have produced over 150 scientific publications, as well as given 150 research presentations, abstracts, and invited lectures. So in this episode, we chat about the current research of physiological strain and how this is impacting the modern warfighter, how this research is impacting equipment design, and how body composition is impacting the physiological strain. Good evening, Adam and David, and welcome to the podcast. At least it's early on, right? Yeah, this is all good. There we go. I think you're back now, Adam. Yeah, so us, us environmental physiologists can't do well with rain. <laughs> all good, guys. All good. I just want to say as well, um, I'm going to say a big thank you out to uh, Tinder Sivak, who put us in touch with each other, and you know, thank you very much for making those introductions. Uh, obviously, me and you guys have had the chance just to chat a little bit off air, get to know you guys and what you guys are doing. For anyone who hasn't come across you and the work you guys are currently doing, can you just tell us a little bit about you know, where your career started off and where you're currently at? Um, if we could just start with yourself, David. Sure, yeah. So um, to be perfectly honest, if you were to ask me you know, 15, 20 years ago, if I would be a research physiologist for the US Army, I, I definitely wouldn't have told you that. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of just naturally progressed as I've gone from, you know, interest to interest throughout my career. You know, early on, I, I really was um, very much uh, interested by resistance training, strength and conditioning, off-season preparation for competitive sports. That led me to a, a very brief uh, college football career at the University of New Hampshire, where um that was really where I got in um, first exposed to advanced resistance training programming and analytics. I remember going into um, our strength and conditioning coach's office to get an updated workout sheet. And on his screen, he had the most elaborate, intricate Excel spreadsheet that, that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had all sorts of numbers, drop downs, inputs, and he was able to individualize workouts for you know each of the players on the team for you know months in advance. So when I saw that, I just remember that exact moment was when I, I knew, hey, this this is something I'm really interested in. Um, I, I you know would like to pursue this a little bit more. So I got my bachelor's degree and ended up having the opportunity to earn my master's and. PhD in exercise science at the University of Connecticut. It was there that I got the opportunity to uh, work with strength and conditioning coach Chris West and the UConn men's soccer team 
with some of their athlete monitoring uh, in which they had been using GPS devices, heart rate monitors, accelerometers, uh, et cetera, to be tracking um, the training demands and how much uh, physical exertion the players are going through during their games. Mm-hmm. So up to that point, you know, I, I had really only viewed, you know, uh, training uh, program design and, you know, quantification of exercise demands, you know, from the perspective of counting the number of reps and sets for different exercises. So for me, it was really like a life-changing experience to be able to say, hey, you know, um, you can monitor an entire team out there, you know, running around in different directions, doing all sorts of different activities at the same time using these sensors. So with all that data, of course, um, it's nice having it, but, you know, you have to be able to use it and analyze it and, and be able to store it, et cetera. So from that, I, I took a couple more advanced statistics, statistics courses, um, as well as predictive modeling courses. And that sort of made me a good fit after I graduated, you know, for the biophysics and biomedical modeling division at Usarium. When I got to Usarium, you know, very quickly, uh, I was able to learn from, you know, Dr. Adam Potter, who's right here with us, as well as uh, Dr. William Santee um, in participate in their, their research project, which is focused on developing um, new predictive equations for the U.S. Army Load Carriers Decision Aid, or LCDA. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the uh, the path that I took. It wasn't a, a direct path, but I, I you know, e- each interest kind of led to the other one. Yeah, definitely. I can see that, David. And it's still like, it's a cool path going from that applied side and then going into more of the deep dive into the physiology side that's led you to the point you're at now. Uh, what about yourself, Adam? What, what brought you into this role? Yeah, so mine, mine's a little bit different. Uh, so I was a, a bit of a punk kid uh, and joined the Marines after high school. So 18, took off, went to high school, or went from high school to the Marine Corps. Um, spent, you know, five and a half years or so in the Marines, traveling around. Uh, got out, realized I wanted to do more with academics and, you know, um, kind of advance in that area. My academic path is all over the place. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology and cognitive sciences. I went and got an MBA, then a master's in health sciences, and then off to a PhD in bioinformatics and nanomedicine. So it's it's all over the place. Um, But my uh, one of my first jobs out of the Marines was at a hospital. And I started actually working as a research assistant uh, doing clinical trials for a, um, a big drug trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I realized, you know, research is really cool. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of productivity you can do. Um, you know, you can put your name on papers and that's fancy. Um, so I, I got big into that uh, from working in those clinical trials in healthcare. I made some friends and, and turns out that one of them actually worked at uh, Usarium. So um, at the time, I was at Newton Wellesley Hospital. It's a you know uh, a part of Partners, so a big consortium hospital. Um, and I lived in one town over from where the base is, and I had no idea that it was even there. Uh, so one of my colleagues there said, "Hey, my husband works here. You know, would you like to check it out?" And I was like, "Yeah, this is this is amazing. I would love to work for the for the military. I mean, I love the military anyways. You know, being a, a you know former Marine." And I really had this passion for, for research. Uh, so, you know, I kind of got walked into the process and, you know, the history is where we are now. So, I mean, I, I love what we do and I could ramble about this all day. So it's probably good that there's bad weather because maybe some of those internet connections will cut me off. But um, yeah, so my, my path is all over the place, but, uh, but I'm really focused on what we do now. Um, and, you know, I'd love to talk about it. So we're, it's really exciting to be here talking with you now, so. Appreciate that. I appreciate that, Nate. And obviously, it's great to see that connection, like going from the Marines back out into the civilian world, getting interested in research, and then come back into the military. For you, David, who didn't have that military background to yourself, dude, what was it that drew you away from sport into more of the military side of things? Um, well, you know, uh, I, I was always um, just, um, you know, I, I always had such a... Um, 
such a level of respect for people in the military. Um, you know, since my, my grandfather, who was a, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army and, and fought in World War II, and he was very much, you know, um, you know, my dad's hero, as well as one of mine. Um, so, so finding out about the opportunity to Usarium for me was, was very excited. Uh, Usarium is also viewed as, as also sometimes or somewhat like a like a Mount Olympus of uh, warfighter performance research, particularly at places like UConn, where I did my graduate program. A lot of professors came from Usarium, and they had you know the most wonderful things to say about it. So for me, I was very very excited at the opportunity to come in, you know, and get involved with some research that was going to go towards helping uh, the brave men and women who are you know serving our armed forces. Um, so, so I, I feel very fortunate to be at Usarium, particularly, you know, with such a lineage of legendary researchers, um, you know, going from Ralph Goldman and Javoni to Carl Friedel uh, to Rich Gonzalez, Dr. Santee, of course, who we mentioned earlier, you know, to be part of that, you know, line of researchers and be able to, you know, call that the, you know, be able to work in the same place is, is really something special for me. It sort of feels like to be uh, a New York Yankee nowadays, where you get to play in Yankee Stadium, you get to wear the same pinstripes as Babe Ruth and, um, and Mickey Mantle and, and Derek Jeter. So it's, it's, it's something that, that I feel very fortunate to be involved with. Um, I also very much like our, the structure of our institute in which it it's very much resembles like an academic uh, research institution mm -hmm. and that, you know, uh, in my position, I have the opportunity to mentor young researchers as they're on their um, path to, you know, bigger and brighter futures. And, you know, uh, for me, there's nothing really much more rewarding than, than seeing a former student go on and succeed um, and be able to pursue their dreams. So, like I said, it, it's, it's really cool to be a part of USARIM organization. Nice. And there's definitely been some incredible researchers coming through USARIM, like just seeing some of the research that's been coming out over the last decade or so. Um, for me, obviously USARIM popped up on my map probably back in 2013, 2014, I think it was. I was chatting to you guys previously before about your colleague, uh, Barry Spearing, who'd come over to the UK to present to us. And, that was a really informative talk he presented there, and it was something I hadn't even, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of, you know, that there was military guided research within a single organization there. Um, for the guys outside of the US military structure, and I like here in the UK, and that who may not be familiar with USARIM, can you just give us a bit of an overview of what USARIM is and what's generally conducted within USARIM? Sure. So, so I guess at the, at the Institute, uh, sorry, the, the, the delay there. Um, so I guess at the Institute, there's, there's five research divisions. One's a support division that kind of helps the infrastructure of all the things, you know, happening like, um, you know, there's the regular support groups of IT, you know, there's a central lab, uh, but there's really four uh, targeted research divisions. Uh, there's a military nutrition division. So they focus on everything that has to do with micro and macro nutrition. Um, there's a bone health uh, component to that. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm gonna say up front that I'll minimize most of what they do just to maximize what we do, uh, just out of habit. Uh, but there's really like, as, as David said, and as you had mentioned, there's some, there's some really talented people that work in these groups. Uh, so it's, it's really nice. Um, uh, so there's a military performance division where actually Dr. Barry Spearing is, is back again. Uh, so we're happy to have him. They look at um, a lot of the occupational tasks, occupational performance, uh, they have a musculoskeletal injury focus uh, research now. There's an epidemiology group. Um, there's some cognitive sciences there. Um, I'm probably missing some components because it's a, it's a pretty big group. Um, and then there's a thermal mountain medicine division. So they've been historically looked at a lot of the work at uh, high altitude, so physiological changes at altitude. Uh, they've also looked at um, subterranean work as well as immersion status. Uh, most of their stuff uh, as of late has been focused on uh, both heat and cold research. Uh, so there's people there like Dr. John Castellani, who's kind of the world, uh, world-renowned cold expert. So it's fun, you know, 
chatting with him in the hallways sometimes kind of as as Dave mentioned there's that like that aura of like greatness uh, but then it's just like hey John you know how's it going um, so then there's our division so the biophysics and biomedical modeling division uh, so we we kind of cover this uh, pretty pretty broad spectrum of work so we we do physical testing of clothing so actually assessing uh, everything that a soldier marine airman uh, or sailor might wear uh, on these uh, specialized thermal mannequins. Um, so this to me, I get, I get all nerded out about this because it's got a pretty interesting history. Uh, these thermal mannequins you know, really started for the US Army. Uh, they have a, a link to um, you know, our division, our, our institute for sure. Um, and now they're kind of used across the world. So they're, um, they started in World War II. Um, I think GE was kind of one of the starters of that, you know, setting up the system. And there's some of these giants that we kind of still emulate their work, like Dr. Ralph Goldman, um, as you know, David mentioned. Um, so uh, that is actually looking at, here's a quantitative uh, look at what does this clothing impose onto you or how does it protect you? And I, I could ramble about that a lot. Um, so then the next part is we, we do biomedical modeling uh, across a, a big range of physiological responses. So, you know, the easy ones are to look at our, our heat stress or, um, or cold response, so heat stress or cold stress, and basically how much a clothing ensemble or how much an activity or how much an environmental exposure is going to put you at risk and how you can better uh, protect yourself from those uh, threats. Um, yeah, we've done a lot of work in static modeling, so basically being able to model something from a desktop and kind of plan mission uh, missions out to say, you know, what do the risks look like? You know, how how can we mitigate these things? Uh, but then we've also done a lot of work with uh, embedded sensors, so actually saying, okay, if you had the had information in real time, how could you maximize that information to make it more useful to you? So say. A prediction of gate or view, and I'm, you know, I could talk forever. So if you have more questions, or if you think of a topic that you don't think we're working on, I would challenge that we probably will or do. So obviously, Adam, uh, you know, the research you guys are doing currently, you're doing a lot looking uh, conducting on physiological strain within the modern war fighters. So what what some of the things you've got currently going on? Some of your projects. Uh, yeah, so a, a lot of our recent work has been focused on the development of the U.S. Army Load Carriage Decision Aid, which is a mission planning tool for predicting the physiological impacts of various dismounted scenarios. Um, so if you think of, of you know, uh, warfighters um, going on a ruck march or, or having to, you know, um, get from point A to point B, um, you know, there are a lot of different factors that can influence, um, you know, how they're, you know, they're, the physiological impacts. And when we think of physiological impacts, um, you know, the primary one we look at would be metabolic rate or energy expenditure or calorie expenditure. Um, so, uh, and a number of different things can influence that. So there's individual characteristics, there's um, factors related to equipment, uh, things that the soldiers are either carrying, wearing as part of their ensemble, um, in addition to just uh, characteristics of, of the activity they're doing. So in this case, if, it's, if we're talking about a march, um, it's how fast they're going, uh, if they're going uphill, downhill, uh, what type of terrain they're walking over. So there's all sorts of different um, uh, variables that you have to account for. And just a few years back, um, Doctors Santee and, and Potter actually led a field study uh, to assess some of the existing equations for predicting metabolic energy expenditure. And they found that um, those tools were just not suitable for modern warfighters. Mm -hmm. So, and, and um, due to that, we would have to come out with uh, a series of new equations that could provide accurate estimates for the you know, soldiers uh, of today. So we've sort of been systematically developing each equation one at a time to serve as the foundation for the LCDA. Um, you know, we started with a meta regression of 48 uh, walking studies to determine just how many calories soldiers burn when they're walking from, you know, or walking at slow speeds to fast speeds. Uh, we followed that up by 
developing an improved equation that would predict what are the metabolic costs of walking uphill or downhill from um, you know, extreme gradients and slopes. In this case, we went from, uh, I believe, negative 40% grade to uh, positive 45% grade. So just keep in mind that the most treadmills will only go up to about 15% grade. Yeah. So we, we really wanted to, to capture the whole you know, spectrum of uh, slopes that soldiers were gonna walk upon. Um, most recently, we just developed an equation that uh, predicts the energy costs of carrying um, different levels of loading in the Mali 4000. And the Mali 4000 is the latest US Army um, rucksack that was developed. So along the way, we've learned uh, a ton of things and, and gotten a lot of insight about you know, how loading affects pacing, uh, perceived effort, fatigue, body temperature, um, and just overall cardiorespiratory strain. Um, and you know, we have a number of studies that are gonna be following up on these um, to just you know, further start hitting all of the different um, variables and factors that are going to impact the soldier. Mm -hmm. So with that, what you were saying, you're saying the, the effect of different gradients and that, what sort of load were you guys using across that for, was it just standardized load across each, uh, each condition, I'm guessing? Sure. So for our most recent study, we had uh, four load conditions, um, 0, 22, 44, and 66% uh, body weight. Okay. And we, we packed them according to... Um, you know, proportional to each soldier's own body weight, um, not to make it easier for the smaller soldiers, but to make it more challenging for the larger soldiers. Um, uh, experiments in the past that have used just absolute loads where they'll just pick one pack um, are, are sort of limited because you have to pick a pack that all of your volunteers are going to be able to carry. Yeah. So in our, our current, you know, our, our, our most recent study, our soldiers range between 120 pounds to 260 pounds. So, you know, 66% of the 122 or the 120 pounds soldier um, is, is nothing for that, you know, 260 pound soldier. Yeah. But in, in, you know, if you were to reverse that, there's, you know, um, no way that the, the smaller soldier would be able to carry, you know, uh, something well, well above their own body weight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so can I jump in? So uh, this is one of those uh, fun, you know, science conversations that always comes into Dave and I's cubicle area. Um, so the difference between, you know, testing versus a, with a fixed load versus a, a proportional load. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's obviously value in both, um, but it's really important to us in the modeling community to look at these proportional loads because you can say, um, you know, so like I, I think a lot of times the example was, well, you know, these soldiers have to carry this, this specific pack and this specific stuff and it weighs, you know, 35 kilograms. And it's like, well, that's great. So if we did that one study and we could see, you know, kind of a, you know, a distribution of who can do, you know, who's gonna be most impacted, who's gonna be less impacted, the problem is it's, it's hard to translate it to that next change. Mm -hmm. So the military changes what these packs look like. So doing this in a proportional way, we can look at, okay, you know, if the pack changed from 35 kilograms today uh, to 50 kilograms tomorrow, you know, that original study of fixed load would be not usable. You know, you could interpret some things, but not, you know, quantitatively do it well, unless you had a, you know, ginormous data set. Um, so, but doing this proportionally really gives this uh, a, a bigger room for a legacy uh, equation. Um, so, and as, as Dave mentioned, you know, the differences between soldiers nowadays are pretty drastic, you know, especially uh, taking into account the differences in, you know, say sex or body composition is really important. Um, you know, we have a, a big crew, a, a big diverse population within the services and, you know, they're all doing, uh, you know, intense activities. So, um, you know, so Dave's work kind of stepping through each of these elements systematically is really important. Um, you know, so Dave and I actually talk about, you know, we, we talk about Dr. Santee as like, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, pretty much a figurehead for a lot of our work. 
but he, he had some good points, you know. So when we look at this, um, you know, energy costs, this is something I, I probably ruined his, his quote a little bit, but energy uh, demands kind of translate to everything. So everything we do. Uh, so it's really important to get these things correct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can look at some of the stuff that, that Dave had said where, you know, there's, you know, there's health outcomes, there's fatigue outcomes that, you know, that can translate from, you know, what your energy uh, demands are. Uh, but, you know, if you narrow it down a bit more, so some of these metabolic costs predictions can really be the, you know, the most important piece to a thermal model. So, you know, if you get how much um, metabolic heat you're producing wrong, your th thermal predictions are going to be systemically wrong. Um, so, you know, looking at those uh, exposures, uh, this, you know, this set of equations and this, uh, these steps is really the, the backbone to a lot of that work. Following on from that study then for you guys, what, what's the, the end outcome we're typically seeing there? So obviously you're testing, was it 0, 20, 14, 66% you're saying of uh, body weight and the effect on, um, you know, incline as well from negative 40 to positive 45 there. What, what's that impact then, you know, with each subsequent percentage body weight and that, that percentage incline, you know, on metabolic cost, you know, or, um, you know, uh, rocking speed and that sort of thing for the, for the warfighter themselves? Um, so, so just so I understand, are you, are you asking about the, the interactions between the different variables yeah. okay yes so um well so that's one of the the beauties of the equations we're developing they're all compatible with one another um so you can start to see the trade-offs um between you know carrying a pack you know maybe a heavier pack at a slower pace versus you know uh, a faster pace with a smaller pack or you know what happens if you have to go up this incline um you know, maybe, maybe there's two routes, for example, one is a very steep route that's, that's brief versus one that's, you know, maybe flatter, but it's much longer. Um, the equations we've developed are specifically made for assessing those different scenarios and allowing, you know, the, the user community to be able to determine, you know, which of those is best based on whatever the priorities they have. Yeah. You know, it might be the fastest route. It might be the route that they want to take that's the easiest. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, those are, those are the primary applications of these equations. You know, they're built to be compatible, work together, um, and be able to assess trade-offs when you have a number of different variables that you can, you can change, um, you know, and different scenarios you want to assess. And then with regards to that load those guys are carrying, are we starting to see a upper return on, you know, the total load carriage? So, so do we start seeing a negative return on performance at that 66%, you know, uh, body weight load those guys are carrying, particularly say if they were in a mountainous region for missions, because end of the day, soldiers are going to have to carry their kit in to do their job. So at that point, can you come in and say, right, you know, we're going to see severe performance drop off if guys have to carry beyond this percentage or that sort of stuff? Yeah. So see that that's a really good point. Um, and one of the things we, we always have to ensure that that's understood is that, you know, we're providing information, we're yeah. providing, um, you know, feedback for military leaders to be able to understand so that they can make decisions. Because in some cases, hey, you're gonna have to carry this pack that's super heavy. And guess what? Like, you know, there's no way you can make it any lighter. Um, and I know Adam's been asked this question before in the past as well. Um, so in terms of, 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 of uh, where we see the most amount of deficits, you, you definitely see like a uh, exponentially worse level of performance um, as, as the load gets heavier. Um, so at about the 22%, most of the soldiers are just, you know, they they act like they're carrying nothing. Um, 44% is usually heavier than 66%, particularly with the, the rucksacks. You could see their, their posture, they're leaning all the way forward. 
they're not able to, to march anywhere near um, as fast. I, I think that they top out somewhere around like on average 3.3 or 3.4 miles per hour, whereas they can, you know, get up past 4.4 easily while carrying the, you know, 22 and sometimes 44% packs. Um, so you can really see that trade-off in addition, the um, amount of fatigue and effort, which we measure just using perceptual scales. So, you know, either the rating of perceived exertion, you know, six to 20 scale, or, you know, the level of fatigue on a scale of zero to 10. Um, it's, it's so much worse with that heavier pack, for sure. Definitely, I could definitely imagine that as well. And like you said earlier on, I think it was Adam, you know, end of the day, data collection it's great to have but it's just what what the end outcome is for that with regards especially for the, the modern war fighter as well and how that impacts their their job performance is huge yeah i mean one of the so as as dave mentioned you know we get asked all the time by you know uh leaders you know, hey what how long can these guys carry 150 pounds or you know it's like well you know it's complicated mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of guidance out there that you know, the Army has developed, uh, you know, uh, training guidance or foot march manuals and things like that, uh, that are pretty dated. Um, so, and they're hard to interpret uh, a lot of times. So I think a lot of this work is kind of geared towards, you know, answering some of those questions, uh, as well as, you know, being versatile enough so that they can use it themselves to say, you know, how, how can we better mission manage what we're doing, whether it's training or operation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, there's a lot of those questions, but there's also a lot of those, well, you know, here's how bad it's going to be because we know you have to do it. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a safety piece there, but there's also, a, well, we just, we like in some of the training scenarios, they're like, well, we want it to be really, really hard, but we don't want to kill anybody. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, okay, you know, here's, here's kind of the line, maybe go a little bit lower than that, so. Now, obviously, you're saying there, like, you know, load is commonplace within the, the military and guys are, will have to always carry in kit that they're going to need to conduct their, their, their job or their mission set. You were saying earlier, Adam, and obviously you got caught off a little bit from our connection here a bit, just about the wearable sensor technology as well with regards to clothing use. How does that impact in the, 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 the guys and girls on the ground as well? So we said about heat sensors. Is that giving back clear data to them, like, shit, I'm at risk of a heat injury or a heat strain at this point, or, you know, is it more case you're getting that in testing and saying, right, these fabrics are going to prevent that or, you know, uh, could possibly lead to an increased uh, physiological strain? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So, so we test um, clothing for the material developers to say, and we do these modeling analyses, um, you know, and often we do study human studies to verify them. Uh, but, you know, as chem bio, uh, the chem bio community is always looking at this, you know, what's, what's that space of, you know, that they can maximize a trade-off between the thermal burden imposed as well as the chemical protection. Because, you know, uh, about 10 years back or so, they really started to realize that, you know, there is a little bit of chemical protection we're willing to forego if we can alleviate some of this thermal strain. Because, you know, if you, you put on a um, a trash bag, it might protect you from what's out there, but you're going to, you know, go down as a heat casualty early on. Uh, so the modeling and the, the biophysical testing does that. We do that uh, regularly. Um, and that makes, that oftentimes pushes changes to what clothing or individual equipment gets out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the next step is, as you mentioned, um, you know, some of these physiological uh, status monitoring or sensors where you can actually say, okay, in real time, you know, there's there's differences between everybody, you know, how you are today versus yesterday could be different. So I want to know, you know, no kidding, what is it? What do you look like right now? Yeah. Um, so we've worked a lot on developing those sensors as well as to helping uh, optimize the data that comes out of them. So, you know, putting computational algorithms to say, you know, it's not just your heart rate, you know, it means something else. Um, so I, I think there's, I, I could talk a lot about that, but um, 
if there's specific talk, topics you want, you know, we can we can go down a long road. Um, so the institutes worked on this a long time to push these sensors. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of areas where we try to look at both heat stress and cold stress. Um, I think the the one important one for uh, making a change on the ground now, as I, I kind of mentioned earlier, was uh, Bill Therian. So we've worked with uh, different companies uh, to develop sensors, and we've uh, we've looked at you know government-owned, government-developed sensors or commercially available sensors. Uh, but really, the, the important thing was to push something out now. So we know there's all this technology out. Uh, can we give that, you know, um, um, you know, the unbiased, you know, objective view of these things to say which one's going to give you real uh, reliable data um, that you can use in an operational or training setting. So mm -hmm. that's something that our group has been focused on. And actually the, the one that uh, Bill's been working on, Bill Therian, is actually pushing to the National Guard Bureaus for the United States. So there's 57 uh, civil support teams across the US. So basically there's a civil support team that um, in, each, in each state, as well as a couple uh, in some states. Um, and basically they have like a real world response to um, you know, hazardous material threats or um, you know, something that would happen in the CONUS of the US. So they're operating all the time. Uh, and a lot of times they're in chem bio clothing. So they're, they're put at risk you know, of thermal stress you know, right away. Mm -hmm. um, so Bill has actually worked with them to push, here's a physiologic status monitor and a system that you can use. And they've been fielding it now for the last uh, a little over a year to all those units. Um, the thing we've been working on lately is actually the next part um, is actually giving them some of these models, these predictive models to say, okay, you know, when you go out, it's good to have that real-time data, but maybe you want to, you know, have something that you can um, do some mission planning before or, or midstream during your activities to say, what's, you know, what's your best course of action for, say, a time to rest, a time to work more, et cetera. So um, there's a lot that hits the ground there. From that feedback then are you seeing a positive result with that then from units themselves and hey this has really impacted the way we work and have taken things forward with that yeah so there's there's a there's a little bit of a training and learning curve to implementing these things you know i'll use myself as an example when i first came to the group you know being a former marine they were like oh we have these physiologic status monitors these sensors they can they can see how you're doing in real time and i was like wait I don't, I'm never going to look at that stuff. I'm just going to grab my stuff. I'm going to go out and do what I'm supposed to do. And hopefully I don't fall down. You know, I've never fallen down before. So, you know, it's, I'll probably be fine. Um, so kind of, you know, we've learned over the years that into integrating that, you know, new data stream or information stream is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but we also, you know, we see that as we've been integrating it into these, you know, training groups or into operational groups, they do see the value of that information. Um, so, you know, Bill's done a really good job of actually going out and doing focus groups with them, doing handoffs and trading uh, or training with them with these devices to say, here's how you put it on, here's how you use it, and here's what the data can give you. Uh, so the people that he's worked with have been, you know, over the top excited with, with those outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for the broader military, those challenges still exist because, you know, as a soldier, Marine, you have so many things going on in your head. You have so many things you're paying attention to. One more data stream is just could be the that straw, you know, that breaks your back, you know. Um, but I think, you know, our our philosophy in the last you know few years has been trying to get these things out into the training communities. So if they're training with this information, it becomes an incorporated part of what they do, an incorporated you know piece of data that they can consider. And then, you know, hopefully it'll optimize how they do their work. Nice. And obviously you touched on just briefly there, Adam, about some of the work that's been going on with regards to chem bioprotection and so suits. Are you guys making in ways to other suits, so such as EOD and that sort of thing as well, just so they've got their protective stuff as well? So, so Dave's going to laugh because I, I get all excited. So there's these, um, you know, the one great thing is, you know, at Usarium or, you know, working for the military research, there's some of these really unique challenges mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't look at. And, you know, the EOD is, yeah, it's really cool. It's a, it's a flashy job for the movies. Um, 
But there's not a lot of science that's gone into, you know, the impact that these suits have on these individuals. You know, everyone thinks, yeah, you, you got the suit on, it's going to protect you from a blast. The problem is that suit weighs, you know, what, um, I can't remember what, 60 or 50 kilograms. I mean, it's a huge, you know, weight to carry. Then it's an addition of thermal burden on you. Um, you know, there's ergonomic impacts on you. So we, we don't do all of that stuff. Um, we've been doing a lot of the modeling for, you know, what, what are those things going to do to you? You know, how you can better manage your time in those things, because, you know, like, a, like many things, and maybe the, the greatest example, you're going to have to wear that suit. Yeah. Um, I think for our work is, you know, we've tested those suits, we've shown that, you know, they are actually impermeable. Um, so like a lot of the clothing, it's right along the line of impermeable, but there is some uh, heat transfer that happens. We've done testing to show that nothing gets out of that. I mean, it's, it is, a, you know, as impermeable for clothing for practical purposes as you can get. Um, so that from a thermal perspective is, you know, a challenge. Um, so we've definitely done some work testing. We've done some modeling. We've got a few papers out there that we've uh, tried to make new uh, models for uh, EOD specific activities. Um, there are some groups that have looked at the, the biomechanics or the, the ergonomics of these things actually in the, um, in the Massachusetts, you know, Boston area also, um, as well as some of the, the partners across the base that we, uh, that we work at now. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, there's a lot to do there still, but you know, that's one of those like little extras that we get to do something with, you know, we, we have these models, we have this expertise, we may not be the experts in EOD, or should say by far we're not, um, but there's a piece of that we could actually come in and be very helpful with, mm -hmm. so. And I mean, with that then, obviously you're, you're giving out advice to the guys on the ground so they can maximize their time in the suit because of that uh, physiological strain. Just spitballing here, but just do you think there would ever be a possibility to make those suits slightly more permeable for the wearer, or is it just going to jeopardize them at risk to, to in order to do that? Um, so I think so. We have um, we have a link to a lot of the material developers stuff. There's like you know functional fibers type work that you know our institute has like some activity you know some activities involved in you know. It's, not really ours to be the material developers like we we do the you know the assessments and kind of push those material developers um i see it's probably you know a, a, there's some practicality in leaving the suit you know as it is um so one of the things that uh the material developers have looked a lot at is different types of cooling methods um so uh there's you know and I think people at our institute are actually some some really great experts that have done that testing. So Bruce Cataract in uh, the Thermal Mountain Medicine Division has been doing microclimate cooling uh, human studies for a long time. So we've we've actually leaned on a lot of his work. Um, but the idea is if you have to carry this suit and it's going to thermally just crush you and you know physically may crush you a little, um, you know maybe there's some relief there that you can get this you know a cooling there. Um, EOD uh, is actually a, a challenge there because, um, and it, by design, you know that cooling only has like so. If you do an active cooling system, there's a weight uh, added cost to that. You know, you'll have a battery. You have a logistic tail that goes to that battery. Um, the other systems that they've looked at before, which are more historically used, is uh, like ice-based cooling, so that there's an actual um, cold element that goes into the cooling vest. Mm -hmm. You know, the challenge there is once that cooling is ended, you're now carrying an additional weight uh, that also imposes a higher level of thermal burden. So, you know, it's like, well, yeah, the cooling ends at 45 minutes. Well, you know, we realized, you know, in the modeling that you can go 45 minutes before you're really a heat casualty um, in, in this, you know, in a given scenario. Maybe you just don't wear it um, because it's going to add to that thermal stress. And then once you have it, you have that extra layer of weight, an extra layer of insulation. So, um, so to get back to your question, I know I derailed a bit. Um, I think there's probably stuff in the material world that will get a better suit. Like there's um, 
um, MedEng has like, you know, some, I've met some of their researchers before and they really have some great uh, designs for how they would improve the suits. Mm -hmm. Reducing the weight is always gonna be a challenge because of that ballistic need. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, you know, there one thing that we've looked at and they've looked at is actually adding a cooling component so that you can, you know, you can say, okay, the, the reduced weight is a future thing or something we have to pay attention to. What can we do now? Yes. Okay. I think that'll be interesting to see future uh, progressions on that and how that adapts. One thing I was wanting to ask you guys is, you know, we've chatted a little bit about the physiological strain of the load carriage by individuals out in the field, the, the protective equipment or, you know, uniforms and stuff there as well. But at the, the very heart of that, like the modern warfighter as well. So I know you guys have started doing some research into body composition stuff as well. So I don't want to go too deep into that for you guys, but just touched on it because in your load carriage study, you're saying you've got these soldiers weighing 120 pounds all the way up to 260 pounds. So what is that impact having on physiological strain of their body composition that you've seen just so far anyway? Um, great question. Yeah. So, um, we, you know, I guess there, there have been some well-established links between, um, you know, things such as say body surface area and, um, you know, the heat exchange with the environment. So larger, you know, people with larger surface area, um, you know, are, are going to have a, a greater, um, uh, potential for, for heat transfer. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, of the actual composition, so like the internal anatomy, um, you know, lean mass is is one of the best predictors of resting metabolic rate. So how many, um, how much heat you're producing, um, you know, while at rest, not including activity, um, and and that's going to sort of also play into some of the the thermal modeling piece. Um, in terms of the act, you know, the predictive relationships between body composition and um, load carriage performance. There's been, you know, studies in the past that'll, that'll you know, show that, um, you know, larger individuals carrying, you know, the same pack are going to do much, be much better. Um, you know, there's evidence to say that, you know, uh, longer leg length um, is advantageous, particularly during, during walking. Um, and, you know, with our current data sets, we've been really trying to, you know, provide general um, predictions for, you know, say your average warfighter. And as our uh, database has been expanding, we're, we're starting to uh, do a little bit more investigation into, you know, okay, we know how to predict how many um, calories somebody's going to burn per, you know, kilo body mass. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, what happens if they're, you know, 20% body fat versus 10% or 30%? Um, in general, the cost per kilogram seems to be a little bit higher in individuals that have higher fat mass or, or percentage fat mass. Um, but that's something we're, we're still kind of tinkering with in the lab and, and really trying to ensure that our equations and that our numbers um, line up and can be uh, replicated and reproduced um, in many different uh, volunteers. One of the issues I think we've had um, coming in is that, you know, a lot of the existing equations were made from uh, soldiers, particularly uh, male soldiers back in say the 1970s and 80s mm -hmm. um, and soldiers and warfighters, you know, in the, in the United States military have changed tremendously in terms of their body composition. Um, and that's sort of really getting highlighted by uh, Adam's Marine Corps study um, and some of the recent body composition efforts um, being conducted at the, the Institute. So uh, being able to better understand that um, body composition piece and what the average soldier looks like in terms of their lean mass, their bone mineral density, their uh, percent body fat, um, getting that information correct now is really gonna help improve uh, each of the equations and, and models that we have currently. Um, being able to accurately predict body composition from, you know, uh, height, weight, or, you know, other commonly available variables is also sort of a, a key to um, minimizing some of the 
differences you see between um, men and women in terms of their um, thermal responses. Uh, and that, that's something that we're really trying to highlight more just because, and again, um, historically, most of these um, legacy models were developed on data sets that were pretty much all men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, there's going to be more and more women who are, you know, serving um, in the armed forces and are going to be, you know, in combat roles. So uh, we really need to ensure that all these models are going to be functional for, you know, the warfighters of today and tomorrow. That's interesting. I think that'll be interesting to see as well, like more current data set instead of those legacy models you say, which are very much skewed to one end of the, the scale as well. So that'll be interesting to see how that develops for you guys too. Now, for everyone who comes on the, the show, guys, I'm always interested to know what they're engaged in for their own development and CPD. So on that, could you guys give us a book, an app or website you personally found useful for your own development or your own education? Do you want to take that, Dave, or you want me to? <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. Because our portfolio and our, you know, uh, our view of what we have to pay attention to is pretty vast. Mm -hmm. You know, we we really try to focus on a lot of the stuff across uh, a pretty big spectrum. So, you know, for Dave and I, I know we spend a lot of time going through, you know, Google Scholar or ResearchGate to see, you know, kind of keep an eye on what everybody's doing. Um, because there, there's a lot of, you know, elements of uh, analyses or uh, research design or testing that, you know, from the civilian or uh, industrial or uh, athlete population that we can see value in. Um, so really for us paying attention to, you know, the current research is, is pretty important. Um, we probably should pay more attention to some of the media stuff that goes on. Uh, because we, you know, we could miss something that everybody cares about, but we might think is, oh, we solved that in, you know, X, you know, paper 1977, you know. Um, but I think from my perspective, it's really those, you know, those research focused um, uh, sites. Uh, we do try to pay a lot of attention, you know, for, for our own view of what the military leaders are talking about. Um, because that will ultimately guide how we're going to pay attention to research um, and, you know, what the focuses are for the, the warfighters today. Mm -hmm. um, and we listen to your podcast. We try to make sure that if we're not listening to your podcast, we've made a mistake. Uh, so I was actually, I was going through your list of attendees and it's, it's pretty exciting. I, I didn't know a couple people that I do know uh, were on here and I, I don't know how I missed that. Uh, so I have to review them all now, but um, I think, you know, as an example, this is great. I mean, you could have something that covers a big spectrum of, you know, the, um, you know, strength conditioning, you know, and, you know, you have a lot of focus on, you know, the military, um, you know, because it's a, it's a key population. So I, I think, you know, kudos to you. I have to add that and I'll put the plug in the next time I have the chance. Appreciate that, Adam. Thank you very much, mate. Being uh, linked in with your research gate and Google Scholar recommendations puts me up there as well, mate. Thanks a lot, dude. <laughs> dude. Yeah, so I, I guess just to build off of, of Adam, really a lot of, um, you know, our, our, our work comes down to uh, being presented with oftentimes very um, unique uh, research questions mm -hmm. and having to use some of the various research uh, search engines and databases to be able to identify literature from, um, you know, uh, all sorts of, of uh, years and decades. And, you know, uh, for me, I'm, I'm always excited when I can, I can find some of the really early research, um, you know, uh, studies from the 1910s or 20s or 30s and, and just, uh, you know, view it not only for the valuable data and information that it pro provides there, but also just learn a little bit more about the time period. Um, so for me, I, I think mostly I, I lean on PubMed, um, Google Scholar, uh, ResearchGate as well. Um, and, you know, um, DTIC, I guess too, for, for some of the military specific research um, and, and probably, you know, just some of the academic journals such as like uh, medicine, science and sports and exercise 
or uh, niche or strength and conditioning research. That's great, guys. Some great resources there. I'll make sure I'll stick them into our show notes as well, so anyone listening can tap into them as well. Um, guys, it's been great chatting to you. If anyone's listening, has some interest in the research, or wants to reach out about projects, anything like, what's the best way they can contact you guys? Say so definitely through through email um, or our research gate accounts. Yeah, I think um, so. There's you know there's a Usarium website. I think it's it's kind of consistently under construction, um, but you know it's, it does actually have a kind of an overview of what everybody does. You know, kind of some uh, some of the summary of um, you know papers that have come out or some of the research areas. Um, so that'd be a good resource too. That's awesome guys i'll stick them in our show notes as well and you guys can tap into them as well thank you very much guys it's been an absolute pleasure again to sit down and chat to you guys so thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules yeah it's a, it was an honor privilege to be on here um you know thank you so much for for the invitation appreciate yeah that. thank you it was great thanks a lot guys appreciate that and take care now hi guys really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the monarch team performance podcast I just want to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.